Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn first about why privacy is important and who it is most important to. Then we will go back and be reminded of the origins of our current FISA laws, which will make clear why it is so disappointing that enough Democrats just defected and voted to renew them. Then we will turn to the problems with some of the secret methods of American policing before finishing off with the history of the expectation of privacy in this country. Our clips today come from Counterspin, Humorless Queers, The Young Turks, The David Packman Show, and Backstory. Would it bother you if, when you walked into a department store, a hidden camera scanned your face and checked it against a database of VIP customers, suspected shoplifters, and known litigious people? What if your church used facial recognition technology to see who was attending? You can almost divide people between those who find the idea creepy and wrong and those who say, eh, all in a day. With the latter reaction meaning maybe, I have nothing to hide, so so what? Or maybe, it's inevitable anyway, that ship has sailed. But is this unprecedented corporate access into our lives permitted just because it's technically possible? What expectations of privacy remain when we shop or walk down the street? How does it relate to government surveillance? And as with government surveillance, shouldn't we ask who, when it comes down to it, is most likely to be harmed? Alvaro Bedoya is the founding executive director of the Center on Privacy and Technology at Georgetown Law. He was chief counsel to the Senate Judiciary Subcommittee on Privacy, Technology, and the Law. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome to Counterspin, Alvaro Bedoya. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I'd like to just beg the question of inevitability and assume that these things are not inevitable. Technology exists, but we decide socially how to employ it. In the case of facial recognition technology, you have been part of the process seeking to figure out how it's used, how privacy is protected. And the way that that process went is worth recounting in some detail because it explains a lot about how we got to where we are. Tell us about those 2015 negotiations. Who was there, first of all? These negotiations were convened by the Department of Commerce that aimed to have privacy advocates and industry representatives come together and settle upon a set of privacy best practices that companies could basically declare, you know, we're going to adhere to these and that then could be enforceable against the company for the their use of facial recognition technology. Uh, they started in 2014, end of 2014, and ran actually to this day, but they broke down in the summer of 2015. Well, now, you were representing privacy advocates and being a privacy advocate. There were at the table tech companies, advertisers, retailers, and, and those sort of folks, right? That's right. Facebook was there. Microsoft was there. The Interactive Advertising Bureau was there. Uh, industry associations like NetChoice were there. And so there are a lot of lobbyists and actual representatives from companies. Well, the the mind-blowing part of this, and folks can find your article about it on Slate.com, but what led to the walkout is these groups really wouldn't even agree to 
any instance in which consent was necessary. Tell us about what the, what the stumbling block, if you will, was. Sure. At its most basic level, the right to privacy is the ability to say, no, leave me alone. This is how basically the American legal system has defined the right to privacy with respect to companies since the late 1800s. Right now, when you actually see most companies rolling out facial recognition, as a matter of practice, as a matter of what they do, Janine, they generally don't use it on people to identify them without their permission. And so in this negotiation, the privacy advocates said, well, okay, guys, here's this common sense, actual, in practice, best practice, on the ground best practice that you have to get permission before using facial recognition to identify someone in general. And so we said, why don't we use that general rule that you have to get permission as a baseline for these best practices? And every single company and industry group that spoke up said no. And so then we narrowed the ask even further. We said, can we all at least agree that when you are walking on a public street that a company you have never heard of should have to get permission before using facial recognition to identify you by name. And again, not a single company or trade association would agree to that. And that's when we said, you know what? We are arguing with a bunch of, you've heard of yes men, we're arguing with a bunch of no men. We're arguing with a bunch of folks who aren't here to reach an agreement or a consensus. They're here to stop this. And that's when we walked out. Well, you put your finger on even more finely uh, on what's going on here because you note that First of all, the policy that they wouldn't agree to on paper is the policy that the, the companies actually use in practice. Most be, of them, that's right. Because they have customers and customers demand it. And, and part of what you're identifying as the problem is that the folks who are in that room doing the lobbying, their connection to people, to customers, is is rather indirect. That's right. And this happens at a couple different levels. First of all, the representatives from the companies aren't the folks who are actually, you know, either on the sales floor or rolling out a product online. They are the D.C. lobbyists. But I want to be honest, frankly, I would have preferred to work with a bunch of actual representatives of companies Mm -hmm. with skin in the game Mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, they do have brands and reputations to maintain. The deeper layer to this is that you have trade associations that effectively cater to the lowest common denominator of their membership. Let's say, you know, I'm a trade association and there's five companies who are my members. In other words, the folks who pay my bills as a lobbyist. If two of them are okay with heightened privacy standards, but one of them says, no, sir, I gain nothing from those. Those will hurt me. I have to cater to that lowest common denominator. And so the trade associations are entities you've never heard of, I've frankly never heard of until I entered in these negotiations in many cases, and they are putting their foot down and blocking any hope of progress to establish these best practices. Which is really a fascinating statement about the way the regulatory process and the lobbying decision-making process goes on in this country. It's this tier of industry lobbyists who aren't directly tethered to customers who are, as you put it, shutting down Washington's ability to protect consumer privacy. I mean, it's really quite uh, remarkable and something I would hope that journalists would see has implications even beyond this particular case, obviously, and is worth digging into as just kind of a how laws get made, you know, how policies get made uh, story. Yeah, that's exactly right. 
Well, you also note that there are some things that are kind of structural in the sense that when we talk about government surveillance, we have a couple of places that we can check that whether or not we do is a, is another question. But when it comes to private companies, there are kind of fewer tools in the toolbox, aren't there? Yes. And this is a, a more subtle point that I think a lot of folks miss. A lot of people look at where we are in terms of government surveillance. You know, they look at the Snowden papers. They look at what the NSA we now know has done, and they think, oh man, you know, we are at a low point in terms of our privacy against the government. But what people forget is that our nation was literally founded on the idea of checking government overreach. And so, you know, we have the Fourth Amendment, which protects us against unreasonable searches and seizures. And we have Congress, where it's very easy to form bipartisan alliances to stop government overreach. You know, Edward Snowden released his documents, The Guardian and The Post published them June 2013. One year later, the House had already passed a law to curtail the call records program. Two years later, the president was signing that law after the Senate had passed it, and a federal judge had declared this program to be unconstitutional. And so, yes, there is government overreach on government surveillance, but we're ready for it. On the other side of the coin, though, as you note, our country was not built to combat corporate overreach. The only world in which a court or a government agency steps in to protect our privacy against companies is a world where either Congress or state legislature has passed a law allowing them to do that. And unfortunately, as a result of this lobbying, Congress has stopped passing consumer privacy laws. Since 2009, only one minor expansion to consumer privacy law has occurred. And in fact, there's been one other thing, which was a contraction of consumer privacy law. So I'd call it, I'd call it a wash. Right. Instead, what you're seeing is state legislatures starting to pass these bills. And that's where I think the hope lies in terms of consumer privacy. Well, and I'm sure some folks will be saying that Congress could do more and that we could do more on other levels and checking government surveillance. But I think the point is, at least we have the, the structures, at least we have That's the right. mechanisms to do that. Whereas when it comes to the corporate side, we're kind of grasping to use the tools that we've got. And they're not doing what they might be doing, which is passing new laws. And it's not as though nothing has changed in terms of questions that might be addressed uh, since 2009 in terms of consumer privacy. There's been plenty. That's right. And uh, look at the technology we're talking about now, facial recognition, geolocation technology, wearables, you know, connected home devices like a smart TV or the Amazon Echo. These are technologies that, you know, around 2008 or so, 2007, 2009, we'd really never heard of. Maybe we heard of geolocation, but all the rest of these were really products of the last five or six years. And yet all these technologies are effectively unregulated right now. Well, in a 2014 regulatory finding, you and the center called on commerce to support strong consumer controls on the collection of personal data. You noted that this kind of ubiquitous collection is not inevitable, but you also pointed out in that finding that a de-emphasis on consumer controls may be particularly harmful for traditionally disadvantaged groups, including the poor, racial and ethnic minorities, immigrants, LGBT individuals, and the elderly. Privacy is in many ways a shield for the weak. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, let's put this in really simple terms. Right now, what a lot of folks in the government and what a lot of companies want 
is a world where we protect privacy after your personal information is collected. You know, it's kind of like shoot first and ask questions later. Maybe that's unfair, but think about it this way. Traditionally, we've protected privacy by empowering people, particularly in the private sector, to say, yes, I'm okay with you to collect this sensitive information. No, I don't want you to collect that information. And this empowers people to make choices. Now, obviously, as technology becomes more complicated, as we generate almost infinitely larger amounts of data, that exercise becomes harder. But what many in government and what a lot of folks in the private sector are arguing for now is a world where we no longer have that choice, where instead of protecting privacy at the point of collection, privacy is purportedly collected after the fact. And the real problem here is that who is making those decisions about how your information is used? Companies, the government. And for years and years, there is a sad and deep record of companies and the government making very poor decisions about how to treat the information of vulnerable people. The government, for example, during World War II, used census data that was supposedly only going to be used for the census to figure out where Japanese Americans were living, to track them down, and detain them in internment camps. Nowadays, you have data brokers who are literally creating lists of individuals who are HIV positive or individuals who are victims of sexual assault or who have diabetes or Parkinson's disease. These are lists that, by and large, aren't going to help the people on those lists. Right. They're selling those to... To to rip people off. That's right. So they're selling them to companies. Just to be clear, they're collecting this data and selling it to to companies who might then sell things to those people or... Data brokers do this, and sometimes they are marketed to other companies that sell them things. Sometimes they're actually literally purchased by fraud rings that call people up and enter them into a series of sweepstakes and other basically fraudulent enterprises that bilk them of thousands upon thousands of dollars. And frankly, we don't know what we don't know about this industry because it is unregulated. And so... When I say privacy is a shield for the weak, privacy allows vulnerable people to go about their business and also make choices about their lives without powerful government entities or corporate entities second-guessing them on it and looking over their shoulder and saying, don't do this, do that, or using their data in a way that might harm them. Well, let's pivot just a little bit. Government and corporate surveillance technology may be subject to different mechanisms, but they share this impulse to collect and to use information that people may not know is being used and whose use can have a serious impact. So there's a reason that your group is hosting a conference uh, in early April that's called The Color of Surveillance. I wonder if you could talk a little about what we ought to know about that aspect of this issue that we're discussing. Certainly. There is a really interesting thing going on in our country right now, you know, what are people talking about? They're talking about the brutality and pervasiveness of policing in the black community. That is one conversation that's occurring. There is another conversation, though, that's occurring about the role of government surveillance in a free and democratic society. This was triggered by the Edward Snowden revelations, and it continues to this day. And so you have these two huge debates, historic debates, and yet they almost never intersect. There's no discussion of the fact that for almost the entirety of our nation's history, the black community and people of color in general have been the 
disproportionate targets of unjust surveillance. People might know about Martin Luther King and how the FBI surveilled him. People don't know that the NSA also wiretapped him, and they might not know that it wasn't just Martin Luther King. It was Fannie Lou Hammer. It was Whitney Young of the National Urban League. It was Cesar Chavez. Before that, it was W.E.B. Du Bois and Marcus Garvey. And before that, enslaved people in our country, in cities like New York, for example, literally could not walk outside after dark without carrying a lantern on them so that everyone could see them. These were called lantern laws. And fast forward all the way to this day, and I realize I'm covering about 300 years of history in about six breaths and and four sentences, but today, activists with Black Lives Matter and journalists have revealed that the Department of Homeland Security, an agency founded to combat terrorism, is using its resources to monitor Black Lives Matter even entirely peaceful activities. And so the purpose of this conference is to bring these communities and bring these conversations together and show that in a world where everyone's watched, everyone is not watched equally. And we need to reckon with that as a society and in Congress. In the 1970s, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was signed by President Carter. It was introduced by uh, Representative, sorry, Senator Ted Kennedy of Massachusetts. And the goal of the law was to provide some oversight, both congressional and judicial, over um, the intelligence community, so-called um, surveillance capabilities, directed as they were outward, um, outside of the United States. And the law did, among other things, um, something important, which was to say presidents cannot order surveillance. They cannot order surveillance of of American citizens um, or people inside the United States. That has to, if if the executive branch wants to conduct such surveillance, it has to um, go through the Department of Justice, and those prosecutors have to apply for either court orders or warrants, um, you know, through the typical criminal process in a regular criminal court or in the foreign intelligence context, um, to the Fisk court, the special secret court. So that's all, well, that's all well and good. Um, then nine 11 happens, right? And for those of you who don't remember, um, we learned in 2005, thanks to a James Risen story in the New York times, that ever since 9-11, the Bush administration had instructed the NSA that it was um, now free to conduct warrantless wiretapping operations of Americans, even without those um, FISC orders, without those individualized FISC orders, as long as one end of the communication is outside of the United States. So, uh, in other words, if you call your friend in France or email your friend in Kenya, um, that communication under, um, the Bush warrantless wiretapping program was seized by the NSA and maybe analyzed and maybe used against you in some way. So that was 2005. Um, side note, the New York times, James Horizon actually knew about the warrantless wiretapping program before the 2004 election. 
obviously in that election, um, George W. Bush beat John Kerry and was reelected for his second term as U.S. president. Um, the New York Times sat on that warrant, warrantless wiretapping revelation until after the election when James Risen informed his editors at the Times that he was going to publish the revelation in his book, um, at which point the Times caved and allowed um, the publication of that secret to, to proceed. So anyway, three years later, in 2008, um, one of the last things that President Barack Obama did as a senator... Um, Democratic senator from Illinois, was to vote in favor of a law called the FISA Amendments Act. So the long version of that is the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act Amendments Act of 2008. This law amended the 1978 Ted Kennedy, Jimmy Carter law that was to put handcuffs on the intelligence agencies. And effectively, it removed those handcuffs in in a couple of really crucial ways. Um, one of them was to put Congress's stamp of approval on Bush's warrantless wiretapping program, which when exposed in 2005, um, caused incredible controversy, um, and received condemnation from people on the left, from the ACLU, as well as from conservatives, including Bill Kristol, who, um, was horrified that the program existed. So, Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act of 2008, which, again, Obama voted for as one of his last acts as a senator, that that President Bush signed into law as one of his last acts as president. Um, Section 702 of that law effectively put Congress's stamp of approval on the Bush warrantless wiretapping program. So under Section 702, U.S. persons, that, which is to say people physically inside the United States and U.S. citizens, cannot be targeted by the NSA for warrantless surveillance. They can, however, see their communications collected, retained, analyzed, and even used against them in criminal investigations and prosecutions in the United States as long as they were not the target of the surveillance. So a simple way of describing what that means is that Alexis, say I call my friend in France. My friend in France um, is a target of NSA surveillance. The conversation that I have with that friend is therefore collected by the NSA through one of its 702 collection programs. Even though I wasn't the target, quote unquote, of that surveillance, um, It doesn't matter because the result is essentially the same. The NSA can use that information against me. And even worse, the FBI can use that information against me. So can I ask you a question about it? Yeah. So Mm -hmm. if the law says they can't target a U.S. citizen, but if my communications are collected because they're investigating someone else, couldn't they just target me by targeting a friend of mine who happens to be overseas? Or is well, that- they're not supposed to. Yes, that's in the statute. Um, what you just described is called reverse targeting, and it's illegal. Um, they are not supposed to do that. Now, really important question becomes: How do we know that they're not doing that? How would one ever prove that that was not done? Um, it sort of goes to intent, right? Uh, you would have to prove that in order to, frankly, in order to challenge just on a statutory ground, 
that your communications were unlawfully targeted um, through this kind of reverse targeting procedure under Section 702 of the FISA Amendments Act, you'd have to show the court a lot of facts that probably no one is going to be able to show, including um, that your communications were um, collected under Section 702 authorities, that um, the collection was meant to target your communications and not your communications partners. Um, And so I think, you know, it's going to be very difficult for anyone to ever be able to do that. Another reason why the reverse targeting, um, the ban on reverse targeting is kind of meaningless is because they're allowed to retain those communications, right? So um, you would think that if they really wanted to prevent Americans' communications from being swept up in this warrantless wiretapping scheme, that they would actually go through and erase um, information that they know originates or um, lands in the United States. And they don't do that. In fact, um, in public statements, members of the quote-unquote intelligence community have said that they actually think that those American communications are what they're really after, um, that those are some of the most important communications that are collected under Section 702, um, belying the claim that they, they you know, don't target Americans. The purpose of the statute is to be able to authorize the warrantless surveillance of Americans' international communications. So I just want to say one more thing about this terrible statute, which is that in 2011, um, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, which under Section 702 is not required to issue individualized court orders for this type of surveillance. In other words, Section 702 gives the NSA broad authority to conduct this kind of surveillance without going to the court. Um, the, the NSA is, and the, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, who's the top intelligence official in the United States government, is, on the other hand, um, required to go to the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court when they want to make substantial modifications to the um, regulations or the rules that they use to process or handle or share this, the information that they collect under these authorities. And in 2011, they obtained uh, approval from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court to start conducting what are called backdoor searches on the data that they've collected on Americans through this uh, Section 702 authority. And what that means is that now, um, since 2011, NSA analysts, as well as FBI officers across the country who have access to this database, can actually search for your name or your phone number or your email address or IP address in this huge database that they've collected, you know, supposedly not targeting Americans, but incidentally collecting tons of Americans' communications, um, they can actually search for your name, phone number, whatever identifier in that database um, and review and use in any way that they want the information that, that is returned. So say, you know, somebody you communicate with on a regular basis, um, lives outside the United States. Therefore, all of your communications with that person are hoovered up and stored in this uh, database. The FBI, even before it opens, uh, a full investigation into you 
when it's just looking into you on the basis of what's called an assessment, which is a a level of investigation that requires no criminal predicate. So I'm just going to say this in the simplest way possible. An FBI agent who does not suspect that you are involved in criminal activity, but wants to find out if maybe you are, can search for your name in this massive database of warrantlessly wiretapped Americans' communications. And then if he finds evidence of illegality, even if it's just a violation of domestic law, criminal law, having nothing to do with foreign intelligence, any foreign power, or terrorism, he can use that information not only to initiate an investigation into you, but also ultimately in court against you. Um, So it's incredibly unconstitutional. I mean, it's just obviously illegal. Um, Unfortunately, we... I mean, that's crazy. Have you guys sued them over this? I assume you have. Yes. So the day actually that the law was signed in 2008... The FISA Amendments Act was signed. The ACLU filed suit alleging that Section 702 um, is unconstitutional. And in 2013, February of 2013, um, just a month after the Obama administration has had successfully pushed for the reauthorization of that statute um, through December 2017, um, in February 2013, just a month after this reauthorization that was hard fought and won by Barack Obama, constitutional law professor in chief, um, the Supreme Court ruled in the ACLU lawsuit called Amnesty v. Clapper that our clients, among them human rights lawyers, uh, Amnesty International employees, did not have what's called standing to challenge the statute. Um, so we didn't even get to the constitutional question whether or not the statute was acceptable under the fourth amendment or the first amendment. Um, we were, we were stopped at the standing bar, which means the DOJ had argued to the government. These people can't prove that their communications were obtained, um, through section 702 and through those authorities rather that are granted through section 702 of the FISA amendments act. And therefore they don't have a right to challenge the constitutionality of, of the statute because they can't prove that it impacts them. That's compl- that's um, crazy. So is- they're like, we have the information, you don't have the information, and since you don't have the information about whether or not we're spying on you, you can't prove that we're spying on you, and therefore you don't yeah. have standing to sue? So today, uh, the House voted on uh, FISA extension. This is warrantless wiretapping. I'm going to give you all the details of the uh, unconstitutional nature of this vote to begin with. Uh, It it was supposed to uh, be a close vote because there were some libertarian Republicans like Justin Amash um, and Mark Meadows uh, who were fighting against it. And certainly a lot of uh, true progressives who were fighting against this. and uh, and Donald Trump, for a second, it looked like had done the right thing, but then he went back on it and said, "No, no, no, the White House supports this." In fact, he said it in this tweet. He said, uh, "With that being said, I have personally directed the fix to the unmasking process is taking office, and today's vote is about foreign surveillance of foreign bad guys 
on foreign land. We need it, get smart. Well, that's not actually true. And so Colin Kambacher at Law and Crime with a really good article about this explaining the details and the culpability of all the Republicans and Democrats who voted for it. He explains today's vote was not about foreign surveillance of foreign bad guys on foreign land, as Trump said. Rather, today's vote was about Section 702 of FISA, which largely concerns unconstitutional surveillance of Americans. And he goes on to explain, the law initially passed to retroactively legalize the crime of George W. Bush administration after they were revealed publicly. Section 702 was then reauthorized, solidified, and became part of the bipartisan consensus by Barack Obama and his Democratic Party supermajorities in Congress in 2009. See, that's real journalism, explaining what both parties did wrong. And and we greatly protested at the time. And we took a lot of heat for it because at the time, people were saying, no, that's our beloved Barack Obama. And, and the Republicans are attacking him. You have to support blindly everything that he says. Well, we didn't support it. We thought it was unconstitutional back then, it's still unconstitutional today. It was unconstitutional when George W. Bush did it. It was unconstitutional when Barack Obama did it. And now Trump has joined that course as well. But when Obama went to cover up Bush's crimes, it was really stomach churning. And that's what happened and they continue to do it today, including Nancy Pelosi. So let me give you more details. They argue, Kambacher says, without credibility, that the focus of section 702 is on foreigners. This is not really true and not particularly germane. The US Constitution protects everyone on American soil or under US jurisdiction. The enumerated rights are not supposed to be limited to Americans alone. See, that's very important because even if it's communications with an American citizen and a foreigner, first of all, there's an American citizen involved. That person has rights. Now those rights, their Fourth Amendment rights are gone. Second of all, they're saying, well, we can intercept it because the line goes through America. It's an American jurisdiction. But if it's an American jurisdiction, then the Fourth Amendment applies. And Congress has just collectively decided, yeah, that's a good point. On the other hand, we don't care about the Constitution. This is one of the most clearly unconstitutional laws we've ever seen. And as usual, if you've got bipartisan agreement in this corrupt Congress, as I've told you for now over a decade, watch out. If they agree to something bipartisan, it is usually something horrific. So section 702 allows intelligence agencies to choose their targets without disclosing or defending them in court. The FISC approves a set of rules and procedures once a year and the government promises to follow them. But the government does not have to tell a judge who it is spying on or why. See, that's not how a democracy and a liberal democracy like ours is supposed to work. More important than anything else, a constitutional democracy. There are supposed to be safeguards for the citizens from the power of the government. If you're a liberal, you should believe that 100%. If you're a conservative, you should believe that 100%. It's supposed to protect us against government intrusion, whether it's authoritarian government or big government. Most of section 702 surveillance actually conducted has nothing to do with foreigners or terrorists of any sort. The vast majority of alleged unintentional targets are regular internet users in the United States by a measure of nearly 10 to 1, according to a 2014 report by the Washington Post. So both the Washington Post and Kambacher here doing a great job in explaining what the reality is. They're spying in on us. And then when you ask him, well, who are you spying in on? It's a secret. So let's talk about the Fourth Amendment a little bit more specifically. The Fourth Amendment is at heart, 
Kalmbacher explains, uh, a prohibition against general warrants. Only particularized warrants are permissible and must be based upon probable cause supported by oath or affirmation. And particularly describe the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seized. That's a direct quote there uh, from the Constitution. There's a reason for that, because we wanted to escape the rule of tyrants. So that's why we put into the Constitution. If the government would like to search our property or seize our property, you have to tell us where, when, what, and it has to be specific. It cannot be a general warrant, because tyrants used to do general warrants. I'm gonna get all your information, and, I, and I'm gonna keep it secret, and I'm gonna use it against you, and there's nothing you could do about it. That is not a Constitution. Uh, that is one that is liberal or progressive or conservative or American. It's just not how we were supposed to uh, do things in this country. Now, look, it gets even worse because Senator Ron Wyden um, had explained uh, why he wanted to do an amendment of this bill. So let's explain the amendment and, and show you why it's worse. The bill reforms section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to end warrantless backdoor searches of American calls, emails, texts, and other communications that are routinely swept up under a program designed to spy on foreign targets. So it was called the USA Rights Act, and it was supposed to revise FISA. Now look, I think the original bill was a disaster. I would vote no on it, and, and, and enthusiastically so. But at a minimum, Wyden said, okay, look, if you claim that you're not doing warrantless wiretaps of American citizens, great, I have this thing called the USA Rights Act. And Wyden, by the way, Democrat from Oregon, give him credit for being on the right side of this. And a lot of Democrats were on the right side of this, and some libertarian Republicans were. Give all of them credit, okay? Now, so he said, I'm gonna introduce this thing. It's easy, you could just prove right away that this is not an issue. You pass my amendment, and it says that you are not taking American citizens information illegally, they wouldn't pass it. The USA Rights Act failed today. That failure occurred in large part due to the votes of House Democrats. They voted it down. They said, yeah, you wanna do warrantless wiretapping of Americans? Go for it. That's the whole point anyway. We just took something that was illegal and unconstitutional that George Bush did and should have actually suffered legal consequences for, retroactively made it legal and shredded the Constitution. 65 Democrats in the House voted for it. They should all lose their jobs. Look, all the Republicans who voted for it should lose their jobs too. And a great number of them voted for it as well. And don't get me wrong, I am not letting those 191 Republicans off the hook. And there are more Republicans who voted for it, obviously about three times as much as Democrats. They should also lose their jobs. And if you're a true conservative out there and you have been saying your whole life that you love the Constitution, you should throw those bums out. But that also applies to progressives like Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and all those people who claim to be progressive, but in reality are establishment Democrats that love government power and love the ability to abuse that power against American citizens. Now, real progressives like Ro Khanna tweeted this today. When Justice Amash and Meadows, those are the libertarian Republicans, chair of the Freedom Caucus vote against surveillance, but scores of Democrats vote for it. Then it is fair to ask, what does our party stand for? If we can't be unified around the principle of civil liberties, then what is the soul of our party? Fortunately, that is a great, great question and one question that Democrats should be grappling with today. 
And largely, unfortunately, for those establishment Democrats, the soul of their party is about corporate donors and state power. And it is not what progressives signed up for. If establishment Democrats are wondering what we are so upset about and why we don't support them blindly and we don't bow our heads to them, this is among the many reasons why. You're supposed to fight for us, not for power and more power to the already powerful. I'm joined today by Barry Friedman, who teaches at New York University School of Law, where he's the director of the policing project. He also is the author of Unwarranted Policing Without Permission, which will be out in February. Uh, Barry, it's so great to talk to you. Give us first just a general sense of the book Unwarranted and the issues that you deal with there. Sure, David. Great to be here today. So Unwarranted is a review of uh, policing from everything from the beat cop, so issues of stop and frisk, racial profiling, all the way up to the NSA, bulk data collection, a lot of electronic surveillance, drones, stingrays, covers all of that uh, with a basic theory about how people ought to be engaged in what the police are doing. Is there some broader thesis that ties together all of these maybe seemingly unrelated to some people aspects of policing and law enforcement is there what are the trends that you're pointing to sure there's one key thesis that i think will surprise most people which is that we've lived in an environment over the last several years where we're pointing fingers at the police and blaming them for lots of things that they're doing but in my book i point the finger somewhere differently uh in part at the courts but primarily at, at us at the american people my idea is that we've uh, wanted to be safe, uh, but we don't want to know how it happens. When we do, it indicates that we're discontent with how it happens, but it's our obligation, as is true elsewhere in democracy, to be involved in the front end from the start. And does this relate to, you know, we've talked in, in the wake of revelations from Edward Snowden, for example, uh, there have been a number of interesting pieces written which point out that depending on how recently there's been a sort of notable, prominent, terrorist attack or or news event that triggers feelings of lack of safety and wanting safety, that that seems to have a huge influence on the public at large in terms of the degree of surveillance or or level of militarization of law enforcement, maybe that the average person is willing to accept. Is there something to that? Sure. I mean, you put your finger on a broader program that's true, a problem that's true all the time around legislation, which is salience. You know, we tend to pay attention to what just happened immediately, and it's really big and really important. The problem is that in the rest of government, uh, even though we focus on salient events, we kind of keep a steady stream going of, of sensibility by being involved in regulation all the time. And when it comes to policing, the people are largely excluded from what policing agencies do until there's an explosion like that. Uh, and what we need to find a way to do is to be involved you know, on an ongoing basis and setting, helping set the strategies, figuring out what works, figuring out what are the methods by which we want to be policed. One of the topics in the book, I guess, generally, I'll call it policing in secret. Can you give us some examples of what might fall under that umbrella? 
Sure. You know, I use one example to start that chapter. And as you know, all the chapters start with stories about policing that's kind of gone off the rails, often affecting very ordinary folks in terrible ways. And I start that chapter talking about stingrays. So stingrays are a form of device that the police use to track cell phones. And they can be incredibly valuable and incredibly important for finding somebody who's been kidnapped uh, or somebody's on the run. But they also can be used incredibly intrusively to track demonstrators or protesters. And the thing about stingrays is we, the people, had no knowledge that they were being used. The uh, federal justice department had worked with the manufacturer to provide them to local police, helped fund them under agreements that insisted that they, that their very existence be kept secret, even from judges in cases when, uh, when, when, if the police applied for a, a warrant or something. And so, it started to leak out. And what happens when we keep things secret is that when they leak out, people get annoyed, they get angry. And often they get angry enough that we stop using that kind of surveillance altogether. So the thesis of the book is we need a middle ground. We need to be informed. We need to make sensible solutions on the front end about how surveillance is going to take place so that we're all safe, but in a way in which we're comfortable. Yeah. As far as the stingray, I'm, I'm sure you've read some of the, the descriptions of cases in which in order to shield the existence and use of stingray technology, law enforcement officials were sort of simultaneously building a sort of side by side or a concurrent uh, uh, case, essentially, so that by the time they got to trial or at the time at which they had to talk to a judge about a warrant, they had a sort of shadow chain of evidence that hid the existence of stingray technology. Do I have that more or less right? Yeah, I mean, it's incredible. They call it parallel construction. Yeah. So it fits exactly what you just described. And the idea is we don't want anybody to know we're doing this. Uh, so once we learn some information, then we can construct an alternate story about how we got there. You know, it's always easier to solve a maze by going in from the solution to the middle. And so that's pretty much what they do. And what's incredible, and you have to understand how bipartisan the concern about these issues ought to be, when it started to leak out, uh, what really motivated change was a joint letter from, uh, at the time, the sort of two heads of the Senate Judiciary Committee, one from the Democratic side, Patrick Leahy, and the other, Chuck Grassley, basically writing the FBI and saying, what's going on? And when they got initial answers, their response was, you know, that's not enough. We want to know what's going on. And that's, that's the right response. We, the people, ought to know up front what's going on. We ought to weigh in. We're not crazy. We're very sensible. Uh, and then we ought to make decisions about what's the right way to be policed. And in terms of making those decisions, and as you talked about finding a middle ground and being upfront about the methods that are being used, I've interviewed many people who are on different places, uh, I guess, on the ideological spectrum with regard to policing and privacy and surveillance, et cetera. What's your opinion as to whether the demonstrable effectiveness of a technique or piece of technology at preventing crime should be considered when evaluating whether it should be allowed? Well, that seems the most obvious thing in the world to me, what you just said, which is, should we know how effective something is before we permit it or use it? It's not just a question of intrusion, by the way. We spend billions of dollars on public safety, and the one thing we all want to be is safe. So I'll tell you something interesting. I, I've started a, a not-for-profit to work on these issues called the Policing Project, and one of our focuses is on cost-benefit analysis of policing. So everywhere else in government where there's a lot of money being spent, we try to answer the simple question, are we doing more good than harm? 
Are we doing it in a cost-effective way? Are we being effective in a way that does the least damage? And those are the most obvious questions around policing, and yet we don't ask them. There's almost no cost-benefit analysis done around policing, uh, though we could learn a tremendous amount. Now, there, there are reasons for this, but, but as, a, as a bottom line conclusion, the answer's got to be that this needs to change. In the third part of the upcoming book, Unwarranted, you get into 21st century policing. And I think that this relates to the cost benefit analysis significantly insofar as as technology continues to improve and become more ubiquitous, new technologies, the cost for using those technologies continues to go down. Do you think that that will play a role in the types of surveillance technology, cloud storage, government databases, et cetera? that will be employed by law enforcement in the coming years? So, David, that's a great question, and you've put it in an interesting way. You are absolutely right that the cost of surveillance techniques will go down. And for that reason, I think what we'll see in the future is, for example, much more in the way of surveillance and less perhaps in the way of use of force, which occupies the minds of a lot of people today, because we'll just keep an eye on folks. That's good, right? I'm sorry. That sounds good, maybe at, at the surface. Well, you know, there's huge promise in these technologies, which is to the extent that they can help us focus on and target bad guys, we should all be in favor of that. The one thing I did want to say, though, is that when you talk about the cost of surveillance, you know, it's not just the cost of the gadget. That's what we forget around policing. The co- it's the cost of the gadget, but then also any good cost-benefit analysis would ask, you know, what about the cost of privacy? What about the cost of security, both security from crime, but also security from the government. So that's the kind of thing we have to get better at analyzing as we move forward into this brave new world. But I would agree with you that there's terrific opportunity here for all of us. How do you weigh or evaluate the value of some of those intangibles, especially when the value of privacy may be different to different people? How, how can you even start to dig into that issue? So again, a great question, and it's not easy. I think that the primary reason we don't do cost-benefit analysis now around policing is that we, you know, have to tackle those hard questions. But what I will point out is that everything you just, you know, suggested with regard to policing would have been equally true in the environmental area 10, 15, 20 years ago. Really hard questions about how to weigh the use of progress and certain uh, substances or chemicals in society against the risks of harm, sometimes risks of harm that we don't know much about that affect people in very different ways. But there are really smart people out there in the world who work on exactly these kinds of questions. In fact, we're gathering a bunch of them here at at NYU Law School in February to start talking about it. And the trick is to start to try to, you know, tease them apart and reach answers so that we're spending our public safety dollars wisely. Last thing I'd like to touch on is the Constitution. When we talk about 21st century policing, to use the, the term from your book and technology, Uh, Do the constitutional issues get more complex? What is a search without a warrant when you're using technology? What is even a search? Uh, What constitutes a general search versus a specific one? Is this going to get even muddier? Sure. So the book, as you know, is divided into three parts. The first about democratic policing, the second about constitutional policing, and the third about 21st century policing. And what I try to do in that last part is show how if you get fixed in the correct way on what the constitutional issues are, uh, something that we often don't do and that courts do a terrible job of. If you if you slow down and think about what the constitutional rules are generally, then it gets easier to apply them to the technologies as they come. 
but we really need to do that. And courts have made an absolute mess of this. Uh, and with the you know wave of technology that's coming, we've got to get our heads screwed on right about it. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, stop automatic license plate surveillance in your community. As if there weren't enough reasons to not have a car, here's one more. Automated license plate readers, or ALPRs, are high-speed, computer-controlled camera systems that automatically collect all license plate numbers that come into view along with location, date, and time data. These cameras are bolted on traffic lights, telephone poles, overpasses, and squad cars in towns and cities across America. Think of it like browser cookies, but instead of your web history, ALPRs track your whereabouts as you live your life in your community using your license plate as an ID. Local law enforcement agencies then purchase this data from ALPR providers to use as they see fit. When ALPRs came on the scene, the civil liberties concerns were glaring. This was yet another surveillance technology with zero accountability or regulation disproportionately impacting communities of color and other unjustly targeted groups. To help communities fight back, two months before the 2016 presidential election, the ACLU formed the Community Control Over Police Surveillance, or CCOPS, coalition effort providing guiding principles for local anti-surveillance legislation, as well as a CCOPS model bill. In short, these principles and the model bill emphasize the right for the people and city councils to be notified and engaged at every turn when it comes to proposed adoption of surveillance technology in their community. Nothing will be grandfathered in, every approval will be specific, every technology will be thoroughly reviewed at all angles, and the process must be entirely transparent and well-informed. Then came Trump, and the necessity for cities to protect themselves at the local level became even more urgent with the pending implementation of his racist, deportation-heavy agenda, not to mention the attacks on First Amendment rights as the people immediately began resisting. By the summer of 2017, cities like Seattle, Nashville, Somerville, Massachusetts, and Santa Clara County, California, yes, the home of Silicon Valley, had all passed CCOPS laws. As of that time, 19 other cities had CCOPS laws in the works, with Maine and California working on passing statewide CCOPS measures. But it is more important than ever to keep the anti-surveillance movement alive. Last month, ICE announced that they have entered into a contract with an ALPR provider giving them agency-wide access to a nationwide license plate recognition database and the ability to conduct real-time location tracking. ICE has claimed that they will not collect or contribute any data to a national, public, or private database, but somehow that doesn't make you feel any better, does it? The Verge reported that the contract is with Vigilant Solutions, the largest ALPR provider in the country. According to The Verge, Vigilant has collected data on 2 billion license plate photos by partnering with vehicle repossession agencies and local law enforcement agencies. They know where you have been, where you came from, and they can even find out if other vehicles are associated with your local trends. 
I don't think we have to spell out for you what that means. Because Vigilant and other ALPR providers are private companies operating in the wild west of mass surveillance technology culture, there are no regulations or oversight to rein them in. Contracting out this work makes it easy for ICE to violate civil liberties without having their hands directly dirtied. Protecting your community and your most vulnerable neighbors, coworkers, and friends must include stopping ALPRs, and therefore limiting the data available to federal agencies like ICE. Go to communityctrl, that's like control but on a keyboard, communitycontrol.com for the CCOPS guiding principles and model bill. You can also contact the ACLU through the same page to get help passing a CCOPS law where you live. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestofleft.com. So if defending civil liberties in your community and across the country is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about hashtag take control to stop license plate reader surveillance in your community via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. In 1984, the police approached a trash collector about some of the garbage set out by a homeowner on his route. This was on a quiet suburban street in Southern California. In Laguna Beach, California, the local trash man became an arm of the law. Police had a tip Billy Greenwood was dealing drugs, not enough evidence to get a warrant to search his home. So they got the garbage man to turn over Greenwood's trash. And there they found receipts for drug sales and drug paraphernalia. Police used those discarded receipts to get a search warrant for the house. And in their search, they found enough evidence to indict Greenwood and his girlfriend on drug dealing charges. Not so fast, said Greenwood. He challenged the indictment, saying the garbage search violated his right to privacy. The California Supreme Court agreed. The case made it all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court in 1988. Court has now decided that once your garbage is as far as the curb, if the police want it, they don't need a warrant to look through it. Writing for the majority, Justice Byron White ruled that police don't need a warrant to look through your trash, at least if it's on the curb. For decades, the court had interpreted the Fourth Amendment as protecting a citizen's reasonable expectation of privacy. Stanford University legal scholar David Sklansky talked to Brian Ballow in 2015, and Sklansky says this expectation was at the heart of the debate in California v. Greenwood. Justice White said, you know, if you put your garbage out on the curb, it's liable to be pawed through by animals, scavengers, children, snoops. Uh, So (laughs) you can't it's it's not reasonable to say that you can expect privacy in something like that. That was that's what that's what garbage is, something you're getting rid of. Yeah. One thing the court didn't say, the court didn't say, this isn't your, you've thrown it away, so you obviously don't care about it anymore. That's what a lot of uh, lower courts had said in disagreeing with the California 
uh, Supreme Court's approach to this matter. A lot of lower federal courts and, and some state courts had said that searches of garbage aren't regulated by the Fourth Amendment because when you discard something, it's not yours anymore. It's yeah. not your property anymore. Yeah. And that was a decent argument up until the 1960s. The problem is that in the 1960s, the Supreme Court had said, we don't think that the Fourth Amendment only protects you against invasions of your property. And they said that because they wanted to extend the Fourth Amendment to protect against electronic surveillance, which often didn't involve any kind of physical trespass. So by the time the Supreme Court decided the Greenwood case in 1988, they had kind of boxed themselves in. They couldn't say, this is not a search because you've thrown it away. It's not your property anymore. And they didn't say that. Instead, they said, it's not a search because it's not reasonable to expect privacy in something that scavengers and animals and children and snoops might paw through. That was one argument. The second argument was, you can't really have a reasonable expectation of privacy in something that you've voluntarily given to a third party. The third party here was the garbage collector. And the court's theory was, since Greenwood and Van Houten had voluntarily conveyed this stuff to the garbage collector, they couldn't really say that they had a reasonable expectation of privacy anymore because when you give something to somebody else, you don't know what they're going to do with it. Who knows what those garbage collectors, I'm sure they're just prying through people's trash all day. That was the theory. Okay, so that's the decision. What did the dissent say? So the dissent was written by Justice Brennan, joined by Justice Marshall, and they essentially were incredulous. They said, we can't believe that the court really thinks that it's not an invasion of privacy to paw through somebody's garbage to find out what they're doing inside their house. And in fact, uh, Justice Brennan relied in part on the same incident involving former Secretary of State Henry Kissinger that the majority relied on. One of the things that uh, Justice White said in his majority opinion when he was explaining why you couldn't have a reasonable expectation of privacy in trash was a famous incident in 1975 when the National Enquirer sent a reporter to take away some of the garbage that then-Secretary of State Henry Kissinger had left outside of his residence and found a lot of embarrassing stuff. And Justice Brennan said, yeah, but everybody <laughs> thinks that this is outrageous. Right. And the fact that it might happen to you shouldn't mean that it's okay for the police to do it to you. Okay. So, David, when we go back to the actual items that really helped to convict Greenwood in the case of these cocaine dealers back in the 1980s, those items are things like plastic straws and plastic baggies that were tinged with cocaine. Uh, that's what the police officer found who was investigating. I don't think we'd find that kind of trash in 19th century garbage. Uh, you know, if I were going through Abraham Lincoln's trash, I just wouldn't expect to find any of those throwaway items. Has the nature of trash changed a lot? Yeah, I think that's right. You know, it's odd because the history of trash searches as an investigative tool is kind of all bound up with advances in technology, partly because trash itself is bound up with advances in technology. I mean, we didn't have disposable straws and disposable razor blades Precisely. in the 19th century. We didn't have weekly curbside trash collection mm -hmm. in the 19th century because 
people didn't generate a- enough trash. So I mean, part of what makes trash searches a valuable investigative tool is that we all today regularly discard so much. We're kind of constantly shedding uh, evidence of what we've been up to that wasn't as much the case um, in the 19th century. So I don't want you to think I'm not paying attention or multitasking, but I have to confess I'm looking at this trash can icon on my computer, uh, wondering whether I should delete this set of emails that's up on the screen. When I hit the delete button and trash them, do those emails remain my property? Are they subject to search? Where do they go? Well, where they go is a really interesting question. Whether the police can get to them is another interesting and more practical question. And the short answer to the second question is, yeah, the police can get to them in a variety of ways. And we've been trying for the last couple decades to figure out how to think about police searches of somebody's computer. We know, for example, that when you put something in the trash can of your computer, it doesn't necessarily wipe out all electronic traces of that file on your computer. We know that sophisticated techniques can be used to recover the file. So how does the Fourth Amendment think about that stuff? The court's been wrestling with that question for decades now, but one of the the court's theories was that anything that you do that other people can potentially see or look at uh, is not something you can claim a reasonable expectation of privacy in. But the advances in electronic surveillance technology, including drones, including GPS tracking, have made the court more and more uncomfortable uh, with that idea, the idea that just because it's out in public, you can't claim uh, a privacy interest in it. Also, at least one member of the court, Justice Sotomayor, has said on the record that she thinks it's time for the court to re-examine the idea that you lose Fourth Amendment protection in anything that you voluntarily give to a third party, which was uh, the other basis for the Supreme Court's decision in Greenwood. Right. Giving that garbage to the trash yeah. man was giving it to a third party. So the problem is that today— We all are constantly shedding not just physical detritus in the form of trash that we put out on the curb every week, but all kinds of electronic detritus. We've just heard clips today, starting with Counterspin, explaining that anti-privacy technology, as with most things, is used to target the most vulnerable communities first. Humorless Queers laid out the history of the FISA law up to this point. The Young Turks explained how disappointing it was to see the Democrats roll over on FISA and extend it for another six years. The David Pakman Show spoke with policing expert Barry Friedman about some of the serious problems with American policing. Our activism for today is in support 
of the ACLU's efforts to push back against license plate tracking in communities across the country. And finally, we just heard a discussion on Backstory about the history of privacy and our trash. Thanks to our volunteer listener, Scott B., for his contribution to today's episode. And as always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Nate from Vacaville. Um, I just listened to the episodes on immigration and also on the future of work. And both kind of touched on how we perceive people who are born in other countries. And I actually think it's a real blind spot that we have on the left now. Trump proves beyond a shadow of a doubt. We're not nearly as bad as the right is broadly. But I think, you know, we still suffer from this invisible bigotry. It's what I call invisible bigotry. Um where people, especially people who are invisible, you know, you can be someone who's committed to justice of all kinds, but you are willing to accept tremendous levels of inequality and, and not prioritize it if it happens to be people who are in other countries. That's kind of like how Lincoln was fought to free the slaves, but he didn't lift a finger to stop the ethnic cleansing of the Sioux from Minnesota just because it was so accepted that Native Americans were subhuman at the the time he didn't even question it. I think that I'd really like to hear an episode on effective altruism, how we perceive people in other countries, foreign aid, that sort of thing, Um, because I think, you know, we don't spend enough time on it. I think our our children are honestly going to be, our grandchildren at least, are going to be pretty disgusted by uh, the way we treat or are indifferent to people in, you know, very poor countries. All right. Thanks, Jay. Bye. Hi, Jay. How are you? This is Jeff. I'm from originally from Cleveland, currently living in Charlotte. And I was calling to weigh in on your most recent episode regarding the Me Too movement and sexual harassment. And I was giving you a call because that entire topic seemed to be rather broad. And it seems like we could be more effective if we sometimes separate sexual abuse, sexual misconduct, uh, and separate that from, say, some people who might make some uh, sexual inappropriate comments or some behaviors. And the reason why I'm mentioning this is that some of these behaviors can be learned that you don't do. Everybody does not automatically know, especially depending on when you were raised and how you were raised. A lot of people don't know and don't understand what is appropriate and what's not appropriate. Prime example, persistent asking somebody for a date. Now there are a lot of people who may have learned that no means no, and they agree with that. But they never learned that you don't persistently ask the same person over and over again for a date. And if you were to sit down and counsel that person, I do believe that you can help them with their behaviors and it can help them in the long run versus labeling that person and constantly at times someone can lose their job just because they might have asked somebody one too many times for a date. And who is to say what is too much? I'm a person who I never learned that that was wrong. However, I never had that problem. But it was foreign to me that that is a form of harassment. I never had the problem. If someone said no to me for a date, I'm fine. I'll go find someone else. 
who I can enjoy myself with seems to be a more enjoyable process. Now, everybody doesn't have that same logic, and some just need to be taught. That's just one point that I'd like to share with you. Another part is that depending, I'm not excusing some of these behaviors some of these men are doing, but depending on their age is when they learned it. I've noticed that myself being a Generation X person, I learned a lot more than what my previous, the previous generation baby boomers know. Whereas now millennials are even less tolerant and they know even more than what I knew. So again, regarding what generation that person is in, judging for the actions that they do in the current generation. And I do believe that we have to also encourage people who, when you see something wrong, don't wait and let that person have to go to human resources or have to see the law. Pull that person aside and say, hey, look, guy, that's not right. These are some factors I believe that we can start on our own. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, in response to Nate from Vacaville, I completely feel your pain. The uh, the anti, well, the anti-non-American bigotry that exists is uh, is very strongly felt, even in the most seemingly progressive of commentators out there. And it is certainly not explicit. You know, they they are they're not speaking against non-Americans so much as they are very very much prioritizing the needs of Americans over non-Americans. And in our current paradigm, that is, it's very understandable, but it doesn't make it the right thing to do or the right position to have. And so, you know, it's really easy to find progressives who don't want for really horrific things to befall non-Americans, you know, they, they don't think that non-Americans should be arbitrarily murdered. Like that's an easy position uh, to, to get out of a progressive, but standing up for the privacy rights or economic justice type rights for non-Americans, that is such a back burner issue. It has fallen in the crack between the stove and the wall. You know, it is just not on anyone's radar. And uh, and, and so, you know, this is an imperfect analogy. They all are. Uh, it might be offensive. Let's see how this goes. Uh, what it made me think of is just a, a, as we progress through time, it is either easier or harder to find uh, someone willing to take a given position. So, you know, you go back like 50 years you could probably find progressives who would say that uh, gay people shouldn't be killed, right? Like, that would be a, a nice, strong, progressive position that, uh, you know, hey, let, let's not kill them. But 50 years ago, you're not going to find even some of the most uh, ardent progressives arguing in favor of 
gay rights or gay marriage or anything that is just like common hat today. And that's sort of how I feel about uh, non-Americans that, yeah, you, you, you can find people who don't think that they should be, uh, you know, extrajudicially murdered by sky weapons. But, you know, should we care about their economic rights? Should we care about their privacy rights? Like, no, it's not our jurisdiction. Fuck them. Like that, that's sort of, uh, that's definitely what conservatives are going to say. Most progressives are pretty much going to go along with that. Like the best we can do is advocate for the privacy rights, uh, or, or economic rights of Americans. You know, we, Hey, we're trying to close our wealth gap in this country. We don't have time or energy to focus on the wealth gap between our country and anyone else. I mean, come on. So yeah, Nate, I, I, I totally hear you. I'm frustrated along with you. I, I don't, I, I think you're right that I, there are sources out there I could find talking about effective altruism. Uh, that is that's a whole other path I could go down. No one who regularly talks politics, who I, uh, who I follow, goes down that path very often or, or has those types of discussions. And so I am frustrated with the sort of the status quo of progressive thinking when it comes to non-Americans that way. And so, sure, you know, I, I can say whatever I want, but when it comes to trying to put a show together the way I do, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty hard. So, so even when I, uh, do a show like the one you were describing, you know, immigration or, or, uh, economics and commentators talk about, uh, well, and, and privacy it comes up a lot in privacy where people are really anxious to advocate for the privacy rights of Americans and don't give a shit about whether or not we spy on anyone else in the rest of the world, as if that will have no geopolitical backlash in any way of any kind. Like, there's not another way to go about it with with the way the world is almost completely globalized. Like, there's not a way we could figure out how to uh, globally decide to not just spy on everyone all the time and see how that goes, see if we can get a little bit more freedom and democracy going. But, uh, you know, that, that's another conversation. Secondly, not quite a response to Jeff in Cleveland. This is one of those conversations that I think a lot of people are going to want to chime in on. And in my experience, these conversations go well uh, or go better even when I let you guys talk first. Because what I'm afraid of is, sure, I could respond to Jeff. There was actually another guy, Jeff, who I don't think is the same person, who emailed me with similar but different concerns about the Me Too movement. And uh, yeah, sure, I, I could respond. But my, my concern is that a whole lot of smart people would be like, yeah, Jay got close enough. I don't need to comment. But if I say nothing and invite you to comment, then those smart people are going to be like, well, all right, I guess I got to say something. And then what those people say will be better than what I said. So uh, I I strongly encourage you to uh, respond to what you just heard from Jeff. The other Jeff who emailed, his primary concern was about what about all the people who are going to be falsely accused? What can we do to prevent people from having their lives destroyed with this, uh, you know, rampaging mob of, uh, you know, anti-sexual assault and sexual harassment, uh, you know, group. So, as I said, I have plenty of 
thoughts on, on these topics, but I would love to hear from you first. So if you have comments on any of that, the number again, 202-999-3991. And that finally is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size on Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show, itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com. Mm-hmm.